All right, Luke, Luke chapter 6. Stepping into the heart of Jesus' ministry a little bit more today. Luke chapter 6, our text is verses 12 through 28. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, whom he called or named Peter, which means Rocky. His brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them, and he stood on a level place, and a large crowd of his disciples were there, a great number of people from all over Judea, even from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Does anybody want to leap for joy right now? (laughs) But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. That word laugh is not just happy laughter. It's the gloating kind of laughter like, I won, you lose. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is God's word. You can be seated. Pretty intense text. At least that's my opinion. Before we uh, jump into what it means, there's just some things that I want to point out. Uh, Starting verse 13, it says, When morning came, he called his disciples to him. He chose 12 of them. And I just want us to to see already that that making disciples will become the, the thing that Jesus is going to pour his life into the next three years. I want us to just think about that for a moment because there are so many ways in which the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, could have come to this world and plugged himself into it. I mean, he could have been a king like Herod. He could have been a high priest in the temple. But I want us to see that the way that Jesus plugs himself into the world is he becomes a rabbi with disciples. 
Because this is going to be the means or the way or the method that he's going to unleash his kingdom. Another thing I want us to see is verse 12. Look at that. Okay, so Jesus goes up on a mountainside to pray. He spends the whole night praying. Why? Choosing the 12 was important to Jesus. Even getting the right guys was important to him. To the point that he spent the whole night in prayer. And I can't help but ask myself this question. When's the last time something was this important to me where I spent the whole night in prayer? I mean, if Jesus is doing this, it's, it's just something for us to think about. The other thing I don't want us to miss as we read this text is that something of cosmic proportions is taking place. In terms of the story, something massive is going on. I'll start with this. Why 12 guys? Why not 10, 6, 14, 8, 20? I mean, why 12? Well, well, 12 in the number is, is the number that symbolizes a complete family. In Genesis 17, 20, 20 it even says about Ishmael that, that God blessed him and, and pronounced this blessing over him and his descendants. And then it says, and Ishmael had 12 sons. Jacob, too, also had 12 sons. And from the 12 sons, uh, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel become God's complete family. Jesus now takes 12. Not that these 12 are going to replace God's family. Um, because if you read Revelation, you're going to see that in, in a perfect sort of way, the, the 12 are still going to be there in the new heavens and the new earth. God's faithful. He's going to stay faithful to his family. But Jesus chooses a family for himself to show God's family the kind of family they are supposed to be for the world. Look at verse 14. Another little detail I want you to see. He renames Peter. I mean, to, to, to name something in the Bible is, is more than just to give something a label. A name provides a person with their very, very identity. It gives a person their life purpose. Even when Adam is given the task of naming the animals, he, he's given authority over those animals to tell that animal what that animal is. And this is why over and over in the scripture, God renames people. It's not just to, I don't like that name, this name sounds better, but the name symbolizes how he's changing them at the core of their being and changing the whole direction of their life. So when God renamed Simon to Peter, I love that name. My best friend growing up used to call me Rocky. Um, and when you see Peter's personality, it just so fits who he is. The reason I think Luke gives us this is this is symbolic of what Jesus is doing with all 12 of them. He's changing them at the very core of their being. And he's giving them a whole new direction for 
their lives. In fact, Jesus is going to teach these guys how to walk. Because 1 John 2 says, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone belongs to Christ, they must walk as Jesus walked. In fact, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is teaching someone how to walk because this this Christian thing isn't just um, a, a talk. It's not just things that come out of our mouth. It's not just sermons to be preached or songs to sing. It's a walk. Our faith is a walk. This is not just something to know. It's something to know so we can walk it out. It's, it's, it's learning to walk like God would walk if God walked the face of the earth. And that's what discipleship is, and that's what Jesus is doing. But here's another thing I want us to see. Discipleship for Jesus is not the goal. Ooh, almost sounded heretical. What's the goal? Look at verse 13. He chooses these guys to become disciples so he can name them apostles. Anybody know the difference between an apostle and a disciple? An apostle is simply a disciple that's kind of sent or shot out. I mean, think about an arrow. Jesus doesn't want to just shoot out sticks or twigs. He's going to shape these guys into becoming the most capable arrows. And then he's going to, boom, send them into the world. That's the objective of discipleship. That's the cosmic thing that is going on in and through Jesus. Through this family of 12, he's essentially going to call Israel to return home, to repent, Then he's going to send these guys out and he's going to invite all the families of the earth to come home. Because this thing is so cosmic, we can't just call this family and God, it's it's kingdom. The Jesus movement is the kingdom of heaven breaking in, breaking out, being unleashed. It's God's rule, God's reign. Uh, It's a whole new humanity that's being raised up and being sent into the world. Look at verses 17 to 19. In fact, I want you to just look at them and think about it. People from everywhere, not just his disciples, not even just more disciples than the 12, but people from all over Judea coming all the way up from Jerusalem from the coastal plain, if that's not enough. They're even coming from Tyre and Sidon. You have to picture a huge crowd gathering around Jesus. And Jesus isn't just preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is being unleashed. People are being healed. The blind are seen. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. This is the cosmic thing that's going on. There is a new sheriff in town, folks. And the world is starting to quake. Anybody uh, know where we get the phrase, the handwriting is on the wall? Does anybody know where we get that thing from? 
We get it from our Bibles, but does anybody know the story? Many, many tekel aparzin. Remember that? Daniel 5, you have the king of Babylon. His name's Belshazzar. He's, he's partying with a thousand of his nobles. Uh, they even bring their, the concubines in, in, which means this thing's probably now starting to turn into an orgy. And, and as they are indulging themselves in this, in this kind of orgy, all of a sudden this hand just appears and begins to write on the wall. And it writes, many, many tekel aparzin. No one knows what it means, so they bring Daniel in. Daniel, what does this mean? And Daniel looks at the king and says, Belshazzar, the writing is on the wall. You're finished. Your kingdom is finished. Another kingdom tonight is going to come and destroy you, and you will be killed. That happened. The Persians came in that night. They swept in. They destroyed Babylon, and, and Belshazzar is killed. The reason I tell you this is because this is what's going on in Christ. Many, many tekel aparzin. The handwriting is now on the wall for the kingdom of this world. A new kingdom. King Jesus and his kingdom are here to overthrow the kingdom of this world. A regime change is taking place. I mean, th- whenever there's a new leader or a new administration or a new coach, they always come in with, with, with their set of values. They come and, and they bring their culture. They bring their pattern. They, 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 they bring their, their stuff, the distinctive qualities that will define the new thing. You know, I know this. I'm, I'm, I'm a coach, and there are things that are really important to me when I coach. I mean, I begin every practice with, with three questions when I coach my eighth grade football team. I got these guys all looking me in the eye. I'm looking them in the eye. We're all standing. We're ready to go. And I say, what can I expect out of you guys today? And they look me in the eyes, and with all their heart, they say, love. And I'm like, that's right. You're going to love your teammates today. Then I say, what can you expect out of your coaches today? Love. I love it when they say it. They scream it. I said, that's right. Everything we do today is because we love you guys. And what are you going to bring? I know I'm in coaching mode right now. Doggone it, we lost yesterday. (laughs) 110%. I said, that's how you love your teammates. You give it your all. That's a culture. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in verses 20 to 22. These are his set of values. These are the things that characterize his family. Those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Here they are. Look at verse 20. Looking at his disciples. Trust me, he's looking them in the eyes. They're looking him in the eyes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. You gotta be kidding. Seriously? These are the, these, 
these are the values, Jesus, that characterize your kingdom, your movement, your family, poverty, hunger, grief, mistreatment. Yep. My kingdom, my family, my disciples will essentially be defined by these four things. Then what Jesus does is he doesn't stop. In verses 24 through 27, he describes the four values of the kingdom that he has come to replace. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who, who mock now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to, to you when everyone speaks evil of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And see, this, this, this kingdom that Jesus just described is essentially defined by wealth or power, prosperity, comfort, and fame. And I can't help but wonder, is there any kingdom that Jesus has in mind as he's saying this to his disciples? And, and I know that the original audience that day, it would have been very obvious to them. It would have been Rome, because this is what characterized Rome. This is what Rome prided itself on. Rome was obsessed with power, obsessed with prosperity, obsessed with comfort, obsessed with glory and fame. But Rome is still just Rome. It, it, it's just like all the kingdoms of the world. It's just another anti-kingdom that sets itself up against Christ and his kingdom. This is where I'll borrow from Paul in Ephesians 6. Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our struggle really isn't against Rome, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we're up against, says Paul. The spiritual powers of this dark world. And Paul says in Colossians 1.13, he says, but you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and you've been brought into the kingdom of the sun. What Jesus is letting us know here is something significant. He's letting us know that the kingdom of this dark world, it has a culture. It has specific characteristics that define it. Whether this is manifested in Rome or America, in the east, in the west, the kingdom of this world and of darkness will always be characterized by riches or power, prosperity, comfort. And fame. And here Jesus shows up. And he said, my kingdom isn't about power. It's about weakness. And it isn't about prosperity. It's about need. And it's not about comfort. But it's about being marked with suffering and grief. And it's not about fame and celebrity. But it's about being unimportant. Unpopular. Couldn't be more opposite. But more than this, Jesus, his upside kingdom, as the world would see it, is going to turn the tables. Many, many tekel a parson. A new sheriff is in town. A new kingdom is here to replace the old, which 
also means we need to stop thinking of Jesus as this passive, meek, and mild person. We need to see Jesus literally as a revolutionary who is unleashing a revolution that's going to quake the world to the point where we're here today because of it. And it's still shaking the world. And what verses 20 to 20 to 27 do is they draw the lines because they help us know what kingdom do we belong This is where I just have to confess, you guys. This thing messed messed with me this week. How can this not mess with us? What set of values describes you? What kingdom values describe the kingdom right now that you're seeking? Now, what many Christians like to do is they like to say, well, Luke has the shortened version of Jesus' sermon that he preaches in Matthew 5 to 7. Because where Luke has just this word poor, Matthew actually calls it the poor in spirit. And where Luke has those who hunger, Matthew has those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and, and we like that, so we just rush this to Matthew 5 because it lets ourselves off the hook. Because what we can conclude then is that what Jesus really meant about poverty is spiritual poverty. And what he really meant about hunger is spiritual hunger and thirst. And we're Westerners. We like to do this. We like to spiritualize things because in spiritualizing it, we can actually justify our lives, which can sometimes be consumed with riches, prosperity, comfort, and recognition. Ooh, if you're still listening, I mean, that hurts. I think we need to be careful with this. Personally, I don't even think what we read in Luke is the same sermon as the, as the sermon Jesus preaches in Matthew. I mean, why would Jesus preach the greatest sermon ever preached only once? Second, there's even a clue in the text that this is a different sermon. In this sermon, Jesus comes down the mountain. In the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, Jesus goes up the mountain. Also, this sermon was preached after the calling of the twelve, where the Sermon on the Mount was preached before the calling of the twelve. So it's my opinion that Jesus is, is nuancing the Sermon on the Mount, something that preachers do a lot. They take the main thing and then they, they, they nuance this, they nuance that to empathize. Emphasize. Thank you. Thank goodness I don't do communication for a living. <laughs> I'm not even going to try the word again. But you heard it, right? That's what he's doing, okay? That's what he's... He's saying, these are the values of my kingdom. These are the characteristics of those who belong to me. It's the poor, the weak, the grieving, the mistreated. These are the things that characterize my disciples. I mean, let's just start with poor. This quality of poor. Poor is a major theme in Luke's gospel. Mary, in her, her song that she sings, I think it's in Luke chapter 2, it's full of, of, of how God is for the poor. 
This goes back already to Deuteronomy 7 and 9 when God says, Look, Israel, I didn't choose you because you were great and mighty and so righteous. I chose you because you were the least. Then in James 2 verse 5, James just comes out and says it. In this church that's showing favoritism to to the rich and kind of excluding the poor, James says, how can you do that? When God chooses the poor. That's quite a statement. God chooses the poor. Then Jesus shows up and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach gospel to the poor. God loves the poor. Just like he loves the weak, like he loves the grieving, and like he loves the mistreated. It's in his heart. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Okay, I've made my point, or the Bible's made its point. What does this mean? Does this mean that we just need to make ourselves weak, miserable, and poor? Does it mean that we need to seek out suffering? Does it mean that we need to seek out ways that, that, that will allow us to be mistreated? Or, or then look at all the stuff of verses 24 and 27, the stuff that defines the anti-kingdom. Does it mean that we, if we possess such things as riches, comfort, victory, status, and all these things, that we're just supposed to rid our lives of these things? I mean, are we just supposed to be a bunch of masochists? I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is that in our heart of hearts, we don't prize the stuff of, of verses 24 to 27. We, in our heart of hearts, don't need these things. We don't live our lives seeking these things. We aren't even impressed with these things. We're not impressed with people who have these things. In fact, if anything, we're a bit suspicious of them. Not the people, but the stuff. Money's just money. Worldly stuff is just stuff. A car is just a car. A house is just a place to live. Any recognition we might get is just hot air. All these things in verses 24 through 27, they have zero control over our lives. Easy come, easy go. Can you say that today? In fact, this word blessed, when Jesus over and over says, blessed are you, in fact, it's almost like an oxymoron. Because what the word blessed means, it it most literally means to be deeply satisfied. And this isn't something Jesus is saying about the future. He's saying, right now, you're blessed. Deeply satisfied. And he's not, I don't even think, saying that we're deeply satisfied in spite of the realities of poverty, weakness, suffering, and mistreatment. But even deeper than that, it's through these realities of poverty, weakness, suffering, and mistreatment that we're blessed. Did you hear that? 
it's when the stuff of, of verses 20 to 22, when that's pushed into our lives, and of course we know it's not easy when it comes. It hurts. It's difficult. But it makes us kinder, gentler, wiser, sweeter, humbler. And how many times, too, in those places do we get to know the king of the universe in ways we never would have if our whole life was defined by the stuff of 24 through 27? You see, this is why we, we, we prize the, the, the values of verses 20 to 22. That when poverty and weakness and grief and mistreatment, they come into our life, we, we, we prize these things. And we prize the poor, and we prize those in need, and we prize those who are in grief, and we prize those who are mistreated. And in so doing, this is how we know that we belong to the kingdom of Christ. And maybe this is where we should start asking ourselves some pretty hard questions. Seriously, what list of values does your heart prize? Just take the list in in verses 24 to 27. Do you have to have those things? Do you live to have these things? Are all your life decisions based on getting these things? Are you impressed with people who have these things? How much of your life right now is controlled by these things or getting them? Or what about the values of verses 20 to 22? I mean, how how do you, how do I respond when when poverty comes into our life, when weakness, when grief, when mistreatment happens? How do we respond to that? Look at Jesus. The one with all the power, all the wealth, gave it all up. When it came to comfort, it says he had no place to lay his head. When it came to grief and suffering, you can hardly find a place where he's not either grieving over something or enduring his own suffering, his whole life leading to the cross. It's marked with it. When it came to fame and recognition and status, he was rejected by almost everybody. He was mistreated both in his living and his dying. He was even in his dying forsaken by his own father. Tell me, why is Jesus a king without all of this? The stuff at 24 and 27. He doesn't care about power. He doesn't care about prosperity. He doesn't care about comfort. He doesn't care about status and recognition. Because these are the values of Caesar's kingdom. The kingdom of darkness. Instead, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see someone who came preaching gospel to the poor. He's feeding the hungry. He's healing the broken. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and outsiders. He loves those who mistreat him. He forgives those who even kill and torture him. 
He came to radically change us from the inside out, not by promising us power, prosperity, comfort, and recognition, but by setting our hearts free from them. It's one of the things the gospel does, is it sets us free from Caesar. It sets us free from having this need for power, this need for comfort, this need for for recognition and status. Do you know today how freeing it is to not need riches, to not need success, to not need comfort, to not need to be recognized? Do you know that freedom? You want it? And I'm not talking about just being free from money, power, prosperity, and popularity and and, and all those things. But I'm also saying having this freedom to actually value things like poverty, need, pain, and rejection. Whoa! We get to that place. We're powerful in our freedom through our weakness. Need. If we want to be free, we just, first of all, just need to look at Jesus. He lived his whole life according to the pattern and values of verses 20 to 22. It defines him. Second of all, we need to remember many, many tekel a parson. The writing is on the wall. The values of verses 24 through 27, riches, prosperity, comfort, and recognition, they're passing away. And to the extent that we have placed our hearts and life in those things, we're going to pass away as they pass away. It's just practical. But even more than this, I need more than an example. I need power to come into my life. Second Corinthians. Can someone get this text? Second Corinthians 2, 8, 8 verse 9. Let me just catch my breath. One of you guys is going to stand up and read that thing. Do I have a taker? Thank you. Please. Two, 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, no, 2 Corinthians 8. 8 verse 9. Yes. Do you see what that verse is saying? Not just what that verse is saying, but does your heart, are, the eyes of your heart, are they open to see what God through Jesus actually did? How he became verses 20 through 22 so that you and I could have verses 24 through 27. I mean, think about all the riches that we have right this moment in Christ. I don't have to play the world's game. I don't have to be on top. I don't have to have a lot of stuff. I don't have to have it that you like me. I don't have to be rich to be rich. 
Why? Because my worth is not my net worth. My worth is the God of the universe loves me so much. He literally gave his life for me. Prosperity, the prosperity that that we have right now. Not a hair can fall from our head without him knowing about it. But even in this life, I mean, it can take everything away only so that this life is just at the end of the day a bad afternoon in light of eternity because we're getting it all repaired, fixed, redeemed, made new. Even our bodies. In terms of laughter... Funny, isn't it? How Jesus beat the system? It's hilarious. Think about it. He turned the whole thing on its head and he won by losing. He triumphs through defeat. He's laughing or crying. I mean, what, what a shame that we don't let the losers of this world hear this truth more often. And the winners. Or even recognition. I mean, think about how much our hearts crave recognition. But here's the deal. Why do we care about that? When we, when, when we know what he thinks of us, why do we care then so much about what, for me, why, why, do I, why would I care about what you think about me? I love that story of Stephen, because Stephen, when he's being stoned, it says that he could see the Son of Man standing. The Son of Man is sitting at the right hand of God, but not in the case when, when Stephen is being stoned. Jesus is saying, I am standing with you right now, Stephen. When that court is condemning you, I'm applauding you. That's what we have in Christ. And see, to the extent that we can see this, to the extent that our our hearts know it, our hearts are going to be melted by it, that God did all of this for us. He became all the stuff of verses 20 and 22 so that we could be blessed with all the stuff of verses 24 to 27. Do you have it in your life? You know the biggest barrier? The biggest barrier is we all feel the need to come to God, to come to Jesus with the stuff of verses 24, 25, and 26, when in reality the way we receive it is we come to him empty-handed and poor. We come to him with our need. We come to him with our tears and with our grieving. And we come to him humble, humble. Unless we humble ourselves, says Jesus, like a little child. We'll never, ever experience the kingdom of heaven. I was serious when I asked, is there leaping today? Are we leaping for joy? Because that's what the kingdom of heaven produces in us. And only the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.
God, we just know that you give us so much to think about, to ponder. God, I pray that as a church that we would not walk away from this text sad today like the rich young ruler. I pray that this text would make us happy, that it would cause us to leap. Set our hearts free. Open the eyes of our heart, God, so that we can see Christ and his kingdom. And set us free this morning, God, to come to you with all the stuff of verses 20 to 22, God. Let that be the way we approach you. God, nothing in our hands we bring. We come poor. We come to you with need. We come to you with our tears. We're grateful today, Lord. We're grateful for all that you are, all that you do, and even how you do it, how you do it. In Jesus' name I pray.